Well, good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Doing well? Overcast day? Awake? Are we good? My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. We are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. So grab your Bibles and let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 961. Page 961. Um, so we've been studying 1 Corinthians 15, the longest, most extensive teaching on the resurrection in the New Testament, uh, specifically to, to lead up to um, uh, our Easter weekend and, and incorporate this study, of course, into our celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And so this coming week, we do have some special uh, adjustments that are making to our schedule, and so I uh, would encourage you to, uh, to take note of those and, and to be uh, involved as involved as you can be. Friday night, this Friday night, we have our Good Friday service at 7 o'clock. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to come on out. We have no idea how many people are going to be coming, um, and uh, it's usually fairly well attended, so I encourage you to show up early. Um, we were a little surprised by our, our Christmas Eve service this year. There were uh, quite a few more people than, than we expected, and, and so it may be true for Good Friday as well. Uh, but Good Friday, man, Good Friday is a unique service. There's really no other service like it over the course of the year. On Good Friday, of course, we commemorate the crucifixion of Christ because He was crucified on the Friday before He was raised on a Sunday. And, uh, and so I think it's really, really good for our hearts to come and just sit in the heaviness uh, of that dark day. Um, not so that we'll be depressed, um, but so that we will be softened. To his love, because of course we know that it was our sin that put Christ on the cross, and we also know that it was his love that held him there. And so, as we come together, we are mourning our, our sin, we're, we're mourning um, uh, the price he had to pay, and we're giving thanks and we're celebrating that he was more than willing to pay it because he loved us that much. So, that, that's going to be Friday night, seven o'clock. Uh, there's no Saturday. On, uh, there's no Saturday on service. There's no service on Saturday. Um, that is Silent Saturday, and so we've decided not to have uh, our normal Saturday night service uh, on that Saturday. On Sunday, we will have three services: uh, our sunrise service at 7 a.m. and then a nine uh, and a 10:45. Our normal nine and 10:45. If you're coming to our 7 a.m., um, there will be no childcare. So if you're an early riser with your kids, just bring your kids with you to the service. I also need to let you know that going forward, um, we, had, we had decided we were committing to our Saturday night service for the nine months of, of really kind of what we call the, the two ministry seasons, the fall and the spring. Summer, we know uh, attendance dips, um, and usually it happens late April, early May, and then runs through um, early August, uh, where you just have fewer people, a lot of people traveling, a lot of activities, a lot of family stuff. It's just every year it's predictable. Um, and so we did decide that we are going to put our Saturday night service on hold over the summer. Um, we, were, we were having difficulty getting enough people to serve at that service. And honestly, there were some, some Saturdays recently where um, we had about as many people serving as we had attending. And so um, we are over the summer going to our two Sunday morning services. So 9 and 10.45. So last night was our last Saturday night service for the season. And um, if, you're, if you're like, oh man, I missed my chance, don't worry. Um, look for the fall, okay? All right, so 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at verses uh, 35 through 49 this morning. Um, I'm going to let you know this is a complex passage and a difficult passage, honestly, to teach. Uh, my sermon this morning is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy. Uh, and that is because 
in this entire section, there's not a single command, right? There are no imperatives, right? He doesn't say, because of this, do this. So uh, really, this is a lot of information that Paul is simply saying, it's really, really important you know this. It's vital that you have this information because this information, this knowledge will affect how you view life and how you interact with your hope of the gospel. And so I, 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 it's going to be enriching, and, I, and I'm looking forward to unpacking it with you this morning. Um, but uh, I'm telling you, we're going to be swimming on the deep end of the pool this morning. And so uh, I hope you're ready for that. All right, so I'll read this out loud. Uh, I would like for you to follow along uh, as I do, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ, a star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised or some it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last man or the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He was the man of dust. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, all right, so Paul comes out of the gate uh, with a question. And, and the question, it's actually two questions, but the question paraphrased is this. Uh, Paul, Paul, do you really think that a rotting corpse is going to climb out of the grave and be made new? Do you, do you really think that, that a corpse that is in the midst of decay is going to climb out of the grave and be a suitable body? I mean, is that even possible? Now, here's the thing. We know that whoever asked this of Paul um, wasn't just asking a challenging question. They were meant to challenge Paul's authority. Um, they weren't asking a question. They were questioning. Those are two different things. Uh, people who are questioning are not looking for answers. They're just trying to find ways to undermine someone's authority. Um, those who are asking questions have legitimate doubts. And, and we know that this is a questioner because of the way Paul responds. Because right there in the very next verse, he's like, you foolish person, you fool. Like literally he's saying, you nonsense person. So, so he immediately silences the questioner, but then he goes on to answer their question because he knows that there are those with legitimate questions about the resurrection. There are those in Corinth who, who may be looking to undermine and challenge his authority, but there are others in Corinth who are really struggling 
to understand this, this profound truth. And there are, you guys, legitimate questions. I'm guessing you have legitimate questions about the resurrection, right? I mean, seriously, how is this going to work? What, what's it going to be like when we're raised from the dead? What, what kind of body are we going to have, right? Are, are old people still going to be old? Like if you live to a ripe old age, hey, congratulations, you get to keep that body forever, right? Are, are infants going to be raised in their infant bodies? Um, how, how does that work? It gets more complex when you think about what Jesus said about life in the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus, there were multiple things. One specifically, Jesus said there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage in the kingdom of God. So there will be no covenant marriage. There will be no reproduction. What does that mean? Like, how do I even, con- how do you even conceptualize a world in which there, there's, there's no sex, right? And not just because of the sex thing, but, but how much that defines um, our relationships and our sense of self. And our, I mean, what is that? How does that? Are we even going to be human, right? Are we, are we just going to be angel beings? Is that it? That, that we're going to be raised and, and we're going to be angels and we're going to play harps and, and you know, do angel things? Is that? Um... So here's the thing. Paul rebukes the questioner, but he goes on to give a thorough and extensive answer to the question. Um, it's complex. It's deep. And I'm warning you, we are swimming on the deep side of the pool, but it is powerfully enriching and powerfully encouraging. So let's dig into this. In verses 35 through 41, that first paragraph, Paul makes um, two points related to one misperception. So the misperception that the Corinthians were coming to the table was, was that the body that went into the ground was going to come back up exactly like it went in. In fact, there were actually Jewish teachers that taught that. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's saying that's, that's the wrong way to think about it, right? That's the wrong paradigm. Don't think about the grave like a deep freezer, right? Where you stick something in for long-term storage and then later take it out and thaw it, right? It might have a little bit of freezer burn, but it's pretty much the same thing that went into the ground. That's the wrong way to think about um, our death and resurrection. He says, instead, you need to think about it like a seed. It's a totally different paradigm. What goes into the ground stays itself, but it is transformed and becomes something new. The seed stays what it is, but it is changed and becomes what it could be. So he's saying there is a continuity and a discontinuity. There's a sameness and a difference when it comes to the resurrection. And they were making the mistake of thinking that it was just the same, right? If you take a seed and hold it in your hand, I mean, especially someone like me, I'm not, I'm not much of a green thumb. I mean, the thing just looks dead. It looks like a husk of a thing that uh, who knows what it is, right? And, and, and I don't know what's going to come out of that thing, right? I, even you green thumbs don't know. If I mix up a bunch of seeds in your hand, you're probably going to be looking at it going, I don't know. You got to plant it to find out, right? There's a mystery that happens. There's this, this beautiful, mysterious thing when you put the seed into the ground, when you bury it in death, and then it is born again into new life, it becomes something beautifully different. That, Paul says, is how the resurrection works. And verse 38 is critical to Paul's argument here. He says, but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body, right? So, so we look at the seed. Here's the thing. That seed will produce the same 
tree or flower every single time it's planted. We don't look at the seed and know what it's going to produce, but God looks at the seed and knows what, exactly what it's going to produce. Because God's the one that created that body. And He created that body for a purpose. He, he designed that body for, for a specific use, a specific purpose, a specific existence, and He gave that body a unique glory that was intrinsic to that body. And God did it as He saw fit. That, that means when I hold a group of seeds, I may not know what's going to come out of them, but God does every single time. It's the same thing in the resurrection. There's one thing that goes into the ground, there's another thing that comes up, and it is specifically and uniquely designed by God for a unique purpose and a unique glory. There is, there is continuity and discontinuity. So let me just be real clear up front. Jesus, of course, our forerunner, shows us a little bit of what this looks like, right? Jesus went into the grave and died, and when He rose again, His body actually rose again. Continuity. It was His body. His body came out of the grave. When they went into the grave, they didn't find, oh, that used to be Jesus. Okay, that's not Him anymore, right? And it's not that God disintegrated that body and created something new. He, he actually gave Jesus His body back. There was a continuity, but there was also a discontinuity, right? And it gets a little confusing with Jesus as an example because he's kind of unique already, right? So after the resurrection, Jesus does things like walk through walls, right? Does that mean we'll get to walk through walls? Who knows, right? Jesus also walked on water before the resurrection, right? There, there are some weird things with him. So we can't take that as a perfect example of exactly how it's going to work out. What we can tell you is this, you will be you. In the resurrection, you will be you. You're not going to turn into somebody else. You're not, going to, you're not going to go into the ground one thing and come out something completely and totally different. You will be you. Your body will be your body. But it will be gloriously different. And that's where Paul goes next. He gives a series of four comparisons that show, highlight the discontinuity between the body you have and the body you will have. Four key differences um, that, that, are, uh, that are different, um, and, and that's in verses uh, 42 through 44. Starting in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That's your first glorious difference. What is sown is perishable. Um, what is raised is imperishable. Now, we kind of know that. Our bodies are perishable, right? There, there's no secret there. In fact, our bodies are, are in a constant state of perishing. That's why they have to continually regenerate themselves. And, and, and honestly, the regeneration can't keep up with the perishing, right? We know that. Um, the, our bodies are, are corruptible. Um, this word perishable can be translated either perishable or corruptible. And I like the word corruptible better because perishable seems to only kind of speak of the physical aspect. But I think there's more than just a physical aspect being referenced here. I think there's also a spiritual aspect. The body we have right now is corruptible, both physically and spiritually, right? We can corrupt it physically and spiritually. We can, we can tear it down through bad behavior, or we can degrade it and, and make it even less what God intended it to be through immoral choices, Choices that, that don't glorify God and don't honor, don't, glorify, don't, don't honor the way we were created, right? That means the body that's going to be raised, it goes into the, into the grave corruptible. 
It comes out of the grave. Incorruptible. Think about what that means for a minute. Incorruptible, physically and spiritually. That means you're not going to be running around the kingdom of heaven worried about corrupting your body. You're not going to be, you're not going to be struggling with, oh, I wonder if this is the right choice. I wonder if this is... Listen, in the kingdom of God, you'll be able to follow every desire. You will be able to feed every appetite. When you feel like resting, you'll rest. When you feel like being productive, you'll be productive. When you feel like laughing, you'll laugh. When you feel like crying, you'll cry. When you feel like celebrating, you'll celebrate. Every impulse. Because there will be no corruption. It will be in corruptible. It's every desire. And some of you are like, sweet, that's how I live now. That's really a bad idea. Right? I mean, if you follow every desire right now, you know what's going to happen? I mean, you know what's going to happen. If you feed every appetite, pursue every desire, live out every fantasy, you're going to destroy yourself and you're going to hurt others because you are corruptible physically and spiritually. When you are incorruptible, you will be able to follow every impulse of your heart because every impulse of your heart will be driven by a desire to glorify God and live in the fullness of the life that He's given you. It's, it'll go in corruptible. It'll come up incorruptible. In verse 43, he goes on, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, the Corinthian um, church was made up predominantly of Greek uh, people that were influenced by Greek philosophy and Jewish thinking, right? Corinth was the capital of Greece. And so um, to Greek minds, the body was dishonorable. In fact, that's how they thought of it. Um, in fact, they had a, a paradigm of thinking that thought that all physical matter was, was dishonorable and the goal of life was to become purely and totally spiritual. Um, Paul's playing on that a little bit and playing against that. Um, to the Jewish mind, they also thought that the body was, was uh, dishonorable, especially when it was dead. Um, if, you had, if you touched a corpse as a Jewish person, you had to go through a series of purifications because the body, the dead body, was, was without honor, without rights. It was dishonorable, right? This body is, by its nature, dishonorable, and it's getting more and more dishonorable until it actually becomes dead and nobody really wants to be around it. Um, it'll go into the ground like that. It's going to come up in glory. The Greek word for glory, doxa, it means weighty with value. Weighty with value. It also means um, with a brightness of splendor. Your body, listen to me, when you're going through the kingdom of God, you will never come across somebody and be tempted to overlook them and dismiss them. You will never come across somebody in the kingdom of God and be tempted to think they're not valuable. You're going to pause at every person you see and you're going to feel the weight of wonder because they will wear the weightiness of their value as those created in the image of God, fully expressing the glory and the beauty of that image. They will be transcendently beautiful. In the kingdom of God, you're not going to have to carefully curate your social media profile 
making sure that every photo is from the right angle and in the right light. In fact, you're going to be gloriously unaware of how people perceive you and how they look at you because you're going to wear your dignity with a pleasant comfortableness. You will wear your beauty without pretension. It will just be an expression of the beauty of your soul, not just the beauty of your body. You will be raised in glory. He goes on in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, or excuse me, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in weakness. The body that we have now is mortal. It's destructible. It's weak. It's frail. We know that, right? We go through our day, and we're continually protecting this frail body from external threats, are we not? Right? We protect ourselves from the sun. We protect ourselves from the cold. We protect ourselves from moving objects. Um, we protect ourselves from food that might do bad things to our stomach. Right? We are frail. We are weak. And we have to be continually protecting ourselves. And if you happen to be able to go through your life and completely protect yourself from external threats, the frailty will still come out because you have a limited shelf life. Your frailty doesn't just come from external threats, it comes from the internal corruption, right? You have an expiration date. Our bodies are frail. They're weak. They're given to, to sickness and disease. They, 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 they break. They hurt. They, they do things we don't want them to do. That body goes into the ground. And the body that comes up is a body of power. Greek word for power is dunamis. The same word we get our English word dynamite from. They're going to be really strong. Like strong. Powerful. Like, like not prone to sickness. Not frail. You're not going to be running around wondering, uh, I want to do this. I wonder if it's safe. The thing I'm always asking. Um, right? Especially the older I get. It's like, I wonder how long it's going to be before this is no longer safe, right? Um, uh, you're not going to be worried about that. You're going to have power. And, and what that means, and I love this, it means God's going to give you a worthy purpose for that worthy power, right? We're not going to be sitting around in heaven just playing harps all day, unless that is your worthy purpose for your worthy. There's nothing wrong with playing harps. Maybe you'll play harps. Harps are awesome. Right? That, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. Maybe that's, that's what God's going to give you, right? Um, but it's not going to be what He gives all of us. He will give us a worthy purpose for that worthy power. We're going to be human. These new bodies are going to be in a new kingdom. And we're not told what's going to happen in that kingdom or what it's going to be like. It's going to be an entirely new chapter of human history. But you will have a worthy purpose for that body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's one last comparison. This is the last, and, and, and honestly, it's the best. It's the most complex. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this one, um, but it is absolutely the best. In verse 44, he says, it is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. Now, this is the most confusing. Um, when you just read it on the surface, there are a lot of people who, who get the misperception that 
what Paul is saying here is that it is sown a physical body and it is raised a spiritual body or a body of spirit. That somehow this means we're going to become angels or, or non-material beings, right? Um, and, and that is exactly what this is not saying, right? It is absolutely clear throughout the New Testament that, that when, when resurrection is spoken of, it is not it is not transformation into something that we're not. It is, it is a continuity and discontinuity. We, we will be human, right? When Jesus was raised from the dead, He was raised in His body. We will be raised in our body. And so, so Paul's not talking about what material the body will be made of. He's talking about what environment the body is made for. Did you catch that? He's not talking about what the material is that the body's made of. He's talking about the environment that the body is made for. The comparison isn't between a physical body and a non-physical body. The comparison is between a body that was designed for life in this age and a body that will be designed for the age to come, for the kingdom of God. All right, it's going to be helpful, hopefully, as we dig into these words a little bit more. Uh, it can also be potentially confusing, so bear with me a little bit. This word natural um, and spiritual, they're loaded words. Uh, the Greek word for natural is psuchikos. Um, it, it, the root is suke, which means soul. We get, our, we get our English word psychology from that word. Um, psyche, the human psyche. That, that comes from this word. Um, and, and so the comparison isn't between a physical and non-physical body, right? It is between a, a, a sukakos or a soulish body and a spiritual body. The, the Greek word for spiritual is pneumatikos. So sukakos or pneumatikos. Pneumatikos, the, pneuma, is, is, is spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is called the, the hagios pneuma right? Um, it's just a word that means spirit in essence. And so um, uh, the comparison is between a soulish body and a spiritual body. Does that make it straight? Everybody's like, yeah, sweet. That totally clears everything up. All right, so this is, this is where we got to dig in a little bit. What in the world does that mean? Why is the word soulish translated natural? How are those two ideas related? Um, so I hold to... Uh, a tripartite view of human nature. I didn't clear anything up. I believe that we're made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, okay? There are some people that believe that, that we're two parts, body and soul. And so if, if you're theologically attuned and you're like, totally, I, I reject your tripartite view of human nature, totally fine. Same argument, just different technicalities, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it through this view because I think it'll help me explain it. Um, the soul, the human soul, is that part of you that was designed for horizontal life? The human soul, when you think of yourself, your personality, what you know of yourself, that's your soul, right? Who you are. When you think about who you are as a person, you don't generally think of your body. Your body's part of it, but there's an essence to who you are that is both part of your body and disconnected from your body. That's your soul. Okay? It's your soul that relates to other people. It's your soul that relates to the physical world around you. It is your soul that relates to, to animals and, and to trees and, and to, the, to the horizontal world 
around you. The soul describes that part of us that was designed for horizontal relationship. The spirit is that part of us that is attuned to the vertical relationship. The spirit is that part of us that communes with God. The spirit is that part of us that that is in tune with the Holy Spirit, right? It It is vertical in its nature. So the soul is horizontal. The spirit is vertical. So the soul relates to people, to things, and the material world. The body you have right now is soulish. It is natural because it relates to the natural world around you. Everything in it is designed for terrestrial life. And that actually is all you have. Because your first father, Adam, in Genesis chapter 3, rebelled against God. And when he rebelled against God, he died in his spirit. Now, where where do I get that? Well, God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Now, remember, we talked about this in a few sermons previous. Death isn't ceasing to be. Death is separation. So in the day Adam ate from the fruit and rebelled against God, he was separated from the presence of God. He could no longer commune with God. That part of him that intimately related with God died, was separated. Sin came in and, and, and Adam became unholy and could no longer relate and commune with a holy God. He became completely soulish. And every child he had received that soulish nature. And as a result, we live soulish lives. We call that worldliness, right? Soulish lives. We're trying to find all of our meaning in all of our horizontal relationships. We look to the things God created to be for us what only God can be, to do for us what only God can do. We try to find our security and our importance and our significance in our horizontal relationships because we've died. We're separated from from the God who, who meets those deepest needs. And we're driven by that soulish drive. Our bodies are soulish. They are natural. They are driven to find meaning They are driven by terrestrial desires and impulses and materialistic self-preservation and self-glory. That's your body. That body gets planted. What comes up is a spiritual body. A body that is alive. Not just to human horizontal relationships but to the vertical, divine relationship with God. This new body is tuned in to the Holy Spirit. This new body, man, it is electrically in tune with the presence of God. Like the presence of God, you'll feel it. There won't won't be a day where you're going to be like, I wonder if God's around. You know those, those periods of time right now, those dark nights of the soul when God feels so far away and so distant. You'll never experience that again in the kingdom of God. You will be in tune with His presence. You will will rejoice in what is truly good because He is truly good. You will will be boldly and humbly dependent on God for all of your needs. You, You will not compete with God or with others for your glory or for your purpose. 
Because everything in you will find its significance and its joy in His presence. You will be alive, vibrantly, thrivingly alive. To the overflow of God's goodness, the presence of His love, the glory of His holiness, and the awe of His power. Your body, your body will be pneumaticos. Your body will be spiritual, uniquely and specially designed to respond to the glory, the beauty, the holiness, and the love of God. Take a look at the end of verse 44. Paul makes a simple statement. If there is a natural body, (laughs) well, there's also a spiritual body. Um, I love this. Um, Listen, if God was gracious enough to give us a natural body, a soulish body, if God was gracious enough to give us a body that could survive the great rebellion of Genesis 3, if God was gracious enough to give us a physical body that could live with a spiritual separation from Him, the source of life, if God was gracious enough to extend our life even though it was living in opposition to Him, in competition with Him, seeking to rob Him of His glory and dethrone Him of His authority, even if if God was gracious enough to give us a human, natural, soulish life so that we would be given a chance to undo what our first father did by trusting in Christ. If He extended our our lives that we might be redeemed and in being redeemed might once again be restored to what humanity was intended to be. If God was gracious enough to give us that kind of body, God will be gracious enough to give us a new body that is in tune to His presence and is wired to come alive in His glory. Our natural body was given to us by our first father, the first Adam. Our spiritual body will be given to us by the last Adam. The rest of this chapter is a comparison between Adam and Jesus. And what you need to see is is that the reason Paul gets into this is because that explains the nature and the origin of the two bodies, where they came from and what they will be like. Right? So as we look at Adam and at Christ, it explains more about the, the nature of, of these two bodies. Um, and it drives home the wonderful, wonderful difference between the natural and the spiritual bodies. So verse 45, he goes on and he says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He's quoting uh, Genesis 2.7. Um, and literally, being here is that, that Greek word, suke, soul. The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam was created um, with this indestructible soul. Even his rebellion against God couldn't destroy his soul. God created him with an indestructible soul. And, and he lived a soulish life, and he handed that soulish life onto each of his children, which is why none of us could have ever rescued ourselves, because we were born with the broken nature that was handed down to us from the first Adam, our first father. We were all born with a soulish body. And theologically, what we say is this means we were born sinners, so we're sinners by, by birth and we're sinners by choice. 
right? We were broken in our relationship with God by birth and then by every choice we made from that point forward. It wasn't like we were born perfect and then each one of us replicated the sin of Adam and then, oops, we made a mistake and now we're separated from God. We actually received this broken body from Adam. That's why we were completely helpless to rescue ourselves. Nobody could undo what the first Adam had done. We needed a new Adam. Now, why the terminology first and last Adam? Because there were only two men that were given the power to act in a way that affected the entire human race. The first Adam and Jesus, the last Adam. The first Adam was given the the responsibility of of choosing obedience to honor God, to do what what God had commanded. He chose to rebel against God, to, to try to supplant God, to be like God. And as a result, each one of us have received that sordid inheritance from from our first Adam. There was never another human that could act on behalf of the entire human race. Each person is responsible for his own behavior and only affects himself and his moral choices. Now, of course, there's social effects, but, but ultimately responsible for himself. Until Jesus came, Jesus came as a new Adam. Now, what's fascinating is that he's called the last Adam because there will be no other. There will never be another human being who acts on behalf of the entire human race. There was the first one who messed up, and there was the second one who did it right. The one who did everything he was supposed to do, right? He was a life-giving spirit. Now, in connection with this, this is why it's important. The the doctrine of the, the virgin birth of Christ is of actual theological importance because it means that Jesus was born without receiving the broken body the first Adam passed down. He was born with a body that was like Adam's before the fall, perfectly alive to the world around him and still perfectly alive in relationship to God. He was was alive both soulishly to others and spiritually to the presence of God. And he lived his life in continual communion with God. Jesus said crazy stuff like, I don't do anything but what the Father tells me to do. And it's like, when are you having all these conversations where he's telling you what to do? All the time. Because he lived in continual, constant communion with his Father. He was human, as we were created to be, but failed to be. And he lived the perfect human life, which then made him the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. When he died, under the failure of the first Adam, he did it as a worthy substitute, bearing the consequences of the first Adam's sin, dying a death he didn't deserve to die. My sin, your sin, Adam's sin, so that when he rose again, he might give us a victory we could never win on our own. And he became a life-giving spirit. Are you you following where this is going? Not only was he alive in the spirit, but because of the death and resurrection of Christ, he became a life-giving spirit. He now had the ability to give the gift of life, of the restoration of the spirit through the forgiveness made available through His death and resurrection. This is what we call being born again, right? In John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was like, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, that, what, huh? I got to crawl back, and what? Like, literally, that's what he says. And, and, and of course, what he's speaking about is not a, a new physical birth, but a reversal of the separation between man and God a rebirth of the Spirit. Now that Spirit, each one of us has. So if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
if you're a follower of Christ, you have been born again, which means the Spirit of God has come and indwelled you. Your spirit has been made alive once again to the presence of God. The problem is that spirit is still trapped in this body. This body that is soulish in nature, this body that is still corruptible, this body that, that is still worldly in, in the effects of the first Adam, which is why you still struggle, follower of Christ. That's why you have such a hard time living out the Christian life. That's why you struggle with, 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 with doing what you know you're supposed to do or being who you know you're supposed to be, right? Paul talked about this struggle in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, the apostle, is like, man, I want to do what is right and I want to do what is good, but I see a different principle at work in the members of my body. So I want to do what's good, but I do what is evil. I want to, I want to glorify God, but I find impulses within me that cause me not to glorify God, to fight against what I know that is good and true and real and right. I have this struggle within me. And he ends the chapter by saying, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are raised, you will be delivered from the body of this death. When you are raised, what God has already done for you in Christ redeeming you and restoring you, giving you new life will become your holistic experience in your body, your soul, and your spirit. Completely in tune. Because Christ, the life-giving spirit, is recreating you in his own image, right? Take a look at the next verse. As was the man of dust, that's Adam, so also are those who are of dust, right? So we know that, that Adam was created from dirt. He had a beginning point. He was a little mud man that God made in his own image. And, and then bestowed an eternal soul, right, in his own image. And we were created in that same image, right? We're mud men and women with eternal souls. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are the man, uh, of the man of heaven. Christ didn't start at his birth, right? This goes to the the mind-blowing doctrine of the incarnation, this idea that Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's one what? That He became man. That He became human. The man of heaven, the preexistent one, became human and lived the human life none of us could live and succeeded as a human where every other human had failed. As is the son of uh, the man of heaven, so also shall be those who are of the man of heaven, right? Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You guys, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. He doesn't say you might bear the image of the man of heaven if you're good enough. He doesn't say you could bear the, the image of the man of heaven if, you're, if you merit it, if you work hard enough, if you perform well enough. He says you will. 
You've borne the image of the son of, of, the, of the dirt. Believer in Christ, you will bear the image of the man of heaven. In your resurrection, you will be you, but you will be gloriously transformed. And it doesn't mean you will physically look just like Jesus. But it does mean you will wear the image of God with ease. It will simply be an expression of who you are. You will be comfortable in your glory. You will rest in your work. You will delight in what is good. You will live in the glorious community of the redeemed celebrating the glory of God with every tribe and every tongue. Continuity. Who you are will be carried over into who you will be. The diversity that God has created will be carried over into the new order. But we will be gloriously changed. You will bear the image of the man of heaven. You will have a body that is spiritual, suitable for life in the new kingdom, imperishable, glorious, powerful. Like a seed, you will be planted, and like a seed, you will be transformed into something gloriously new. That's really good news. It's an incredible hope. I'm going to close with some word of prayer. I'm going to pray. We'll share communion together in a moment. Father, I thank you for uh, this, this incredible glimpse into your plan, into what you will do. And Lord, if I'm honest... The reality is this often sounds like a fairy tale. It just sounds too good to be true. Because what I know of human life, what I know of my own heart, what I know of my own experience, what I know of, of who I am and who we are, man, I can't imagine. And yet, it's exactly what you promised. It is exactly what you tell us will be true. And man, it sets my heart longing. Because there is something in me that knows that's the way it was always meant to be. There is something in me that craves that experience because I know I've been defrauded of it. Both by my inheritance in Adam and in my own willful choices to rebel, rebel against you. So, Lord, I yearn, I long, I wait for the transformation that will come when my body will be redeemed and my whole self will be restored and I will be able to bear the image of my Savior.
Lord, will you light us up with that hope? Will you light us up with that, with that desire? Will, will you allow our hope for the future to spill over into our motivations of today? Will you help us to live our lives today with the purpose of knowing that that will be our tomorrow? That we will anchor our hopes, that, that we, will, we will allow the motivations and drives of our hearts to be informed by the reality of your goal of redeeming and restoring. That in the end, we will be set free into this glorious kingdom. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.